Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast, episode 201. My goodness, I missed episode 200. I wasn't even paying attention. I'm not the biggest milestone guy in the world. I'm not the type to get too excited about birthdays and that sort of thing, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe every cause for celebration is a worthy one, and episode 200, my goodness, we have come a long ways with this podcast. Look at how much we've learned now, over 201 episodes, so much, too much. I can't even keep track. I don't I don't know how much of it is still in my head, how much is completely gone, but what a fantastic adventure this has been, continually stimulating and just chance to think in different ways all of the time and get to learn so much from such well-informed people. This podcast, I'd, I've said this before, I didn't think anything would ever do it for me the way stand-up comedy does. I Stand-up comedy was my first love. It's the thing that I dreamed about since I was a young man, around nine years old or so, and I just was very, very passionate about it, and it meant the world to me, and I didn't think I'd love anything as much as stand-up comedy, and I'm pretty sure I love this podcast more than I love stand-up. I love doing this podcast. I, I love learning. I love getting a chance to talk with all of these fantastic experts. It's such a privilege, and the audiences that uh, I know when you guys come out to shows and stuff, I get to meet you guys, and now with my stand-up science show where I get people out that are kind of this demographic, the people, the type of people that listen to this podcast and come out to these shows are just such fantastic audiences, too. They're so much better than uh, regular old stand-up comedy clubs. They can wear me down sometimes, but knowing that there's people out there with an attention span, with a curiosity, that actually want to learn things, that want to have uh, big conversations about big ideas, that gives me hope for this world. You guys absolutely give me hope. And if you're new to this podcast, my goodness, you have a whole lot to catch up on. You can start from the beginning if you want. Now, let's see, I used to inform people that starting from the beginning is the best route to go because we kind of set up some information along the way and build on the knowledge. But now, 201 episodes. If you're just hearing about this show, that is so much to catch up on. This is, uh, we're, we're well on our way to being uh, uh, an our our own uh, university here. It seems like anyone can be a university uh, these days. Uh, you do you do risk getting sued apparently, but but uh, <laughs> but uh, the education that we are able to get on this podcast is so incredible, and that I'm able to put this out for free for people, and that I'm able to get a free education, me being someone who never went to college, and I was a terrible student in school, and never paid attention, the idea that I'm able to get such a enriching and free education just through doing this podcast is so wonderful, so I just want to thank you, thank you, thank you all so much for keeping me inspired, the Every time, as the years go by and we add more listeners, I just get more excited about what I'm doing and and more enthusiastic that there's 
so many people out there that are interested in this. So thank you all for being a part of making my dreams come true because that is literally what you're doing and what is happening. And I very much appreciate each and every one of you. I hope to see you out at a live show sometime. And with that, enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm talking with Associate Professor of Marketing at Elbers School of Business and Economics at Seattle University. Matt Isaac joins me today. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. You're going to be on one of the last of the trial runs of stand-up science. You're you're in on the ground floor before we take off and have a big national tour, and it's going to be a big cool awesome show that everyone's going to know about eventually but you're you're in on the on the building the foundation so i very much appreciate that and i appreciate you well that's one way of putting it or you could say i was a guinea pig for for you well yeah i wasn't gonna say that but that's exactly what you are i uh i i'm actually that's most of my job is going around experimenting on scientists uh that's how i view my life so uh so you you work in uh you you do a lot of stuff with one you're gonna be talking about checklists tomorrow i did want to talk a little bit about that because i've been with this new show that I have, I've been making tons of checklists because I have so many moving pieces in my show. I, I just actually, you want to hear? Yeah. Uh, you want to hear? Here's a, let's see if I can find this. Sometimes I, I, uh, stumble over things and this just, this is how little I prepare for these podcasts is I start and then I go, hold on a second. I'm going to look something up. I could have <laughs> looked this up beforehand, but now it gets to sound honest and genuine and in the moment. Hey, we're just winging this. We're just a couple of guys just trying to make conversation as my word document refuses to load on me <laughs> and I'm just buying time. I, I could start. I, I'll do, I'll do them off the top of my head. So okay. here's, here's, Here's a rundown of what I need to uh, uh, put together. I walk in. I get there two hours early. I I got to put up my posters on the backdrop because later on in the show, I'm going to be like, hey, you can buy posters. And uh, that's my impression of me. <laughs> and then I need to make sure that there's four microphones, that they're working, do a sound check as the doors open one hour beforehand. So it, I have a checklist for pre-doors that I have to do. I gotta, I gotta, uh, set up. I'm getting audio. I'm, I have, uh, some cameras set up to capture stuff for internal purposes. And, uh, and then I gotta make sure the PowerPoint's going, you're gonna come early, make sure your PowerPoint is, is working. Um, and, and then I have, uh, set music for when the crowd comes in. I have, uh, and then after that, I have the comp list. I gotta make sure that they have the list of people for my guests and then 
once you you arrive, I gotta get you to the bar staff. I have a separate checklist for when you arrive. I have, wow. uh, I have to should instruct you on where you walk onto the stage, how to position mics. I'm gonna do a little mic tutorial for you. You're making uh, me nervous. Um, <laughs> because I'm way on top of things. Yeah. The- is it? Is this like a? I'm. Uh, is this impressive? It's uh, impressive. Okay. Impressive this sure. is. I'm impressing myself <laughs> with this. I'm usually one of the most disorganized per- people alive. Pre-show. So now. Now people are walking in. I got to make sure my merch is set up. I have posters, rubber bands for my posters. Uh, everything. I have. I have some stained glass pieces. My girlfriend made so with the "Here We Are" logo. I got to set those up. I got to make sure that my credit card reader is working. And that's just the pre-show. And then I have post-show, making sure I have everything packed up. I forgot my microphones at a club last week. This is a, wow. the, the reason why I have checklists. Is like every time I screw up something. I write it down to make sure that it won't happen again. And this is the product of lots and lots of failure. So uh, what am I doing right? What am I doing wrong here with these checklists? Well, I, I mean, I think that's actually totally typical because, you know, my research really looks at how people... I, I do less on how people actually make these checklists and more about how people process and use lists in general. Mm-hmm. And um, you're very typical in that We love lists. I think, especially in the U.S., there's nothing better than a list. And nothing (laughs) better than a list. It's true. Better than dessert. Better than sex. Better than friendship. Better than love. It's lists. If if you go online, you would definitely feel that way. So they have they have something online called a listicle, um, which is basically uh, a list where, in order to get to see what's at the top of the list, you have to keep clicking. And of course, that's a way for advertisers to keep sending you ads and you keep refreshing your page and you get more and more ads. But people just love it. And I think, you know, just like you love your checklists, people love to read lists. I'm a little confused about what you're describing to me. So there's a list. People want to see what's on the top of a list. It's just a random list of like, give me an example. of. So, you know, it could be something. Favorite soaps. Yeah, it could be, you know, the 25 greatest places to see before you die. Okay. You, you go online and you see this list and you're intrigued. Right. And of course, you start right, with right. 25. Okay. I know and what you're you need to work about. your way up to number I one. See. And so you keep going and I've you fight through all the ads that you get because you want to see what's number one. See, when you described it to me in a general sense, uh-huh. I was sitting here. I'm like, who are these idiots <laughs> clicking on these things? And then when you... Uh, clarified i was like oh me i'm i'm the big dummy that loves these i do it i do it all the time so i i love sports i'm from chicago and every year espn comes out with a list of the 50 greatest basketball Mm. players of all time and of course you know i want to see if michael jordan is still number one on that list or if lebron james has supplanted him so i'll sit there and i'll be at my computer and i'll just keep clicking just to see who's number one, and I go through this list, and mm. um, you know, I think people love people do love lists. They love to consume information when it's organized in this form. Why? I wonder why that is. Yeah. So I, I mean, I think there's a there's probably a couple of reasons. One is um, it simplifies things down for us, right? It's you know, you can imagine having a bunch of information in paragraphs where you have to read through everything. It's, it's, a, it's a lot. And, um, you know, work in psychology suggests that we are at heart 
cognitive misers. So we'd like to, you know, use less effort and lists in, in a sense kind of pare that down for us, right? It puts things in an order and we can kind of approach that. And of course, there is kind of uh, this this ranking aspect of many lists, which is very intriguing. And we want to understand how um, one item on a list compares to another. And so that, that kind of thing is really fascinating for us. And yeah, well, there is. Uh, we are these kind of efficiency-based pattern recognition machines, and this certainly, when I read off this checklist, this is like rather than having these things uh, going through my mind before the show and having to, okay, did I forget anything? It is just much simpler to have uh, to have. Okay, I can look. I can actually check this off, and now I don't have to worry about it anymore. And then the in terms of ranking, it does seem like we, we like every. Uh, uh, every organism seems to have, or, or not, or uh, uh, certainly amongst uh, larger mammals, and so there's a lot of kind of status recognition within things, and and humans just articulate it a yeah. bit more. Absolutely, and and I think marketers know this too. So they 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 realize that people like to consume information this way, and so you see this where um, marketers will communicate that they are part of a list, and they know that consumers like that and will respond to it. Uh, we see this all the time in education. So um, you know, every university is ranked by the U.S. News and World Report. And I just looked at that list the other day. Yeah, I just uh, probably yesterday. I think I list, looked at it while putting together my shows and figuring out the markets that it will be That's, the best. Yeah, and and every everyone uses that information. You know, that determines what universities people apply to. I've even seen a study that looked at business school rankings and found that there was a correlation between rankings and whether you had turnover in your dean. So whether your dean left was was related to that. So it actually affects hmm. things. And, um, and I think that's why it's so fascinating that these lists are kind of everywhere. Once you start to study it or think about it, you see them everywhere. And now everywhere I go, I'll just notice these lists popping up all over the place. So the dean is the a big factor, and I I never hear anything about deans. I have a science podcast. I never, I I never have had a guest like, well, the dean at this school is really what makes the <laughs> the the magic happen. What do deans do? I guess I don't even know. I didn't go to college. I don't know a thing about colleges. Uh, just so you know, do deans do anything? So you have, I have to you be have careful to, with this response, right? Um, I, I, I certainly think some deans do 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 something, but um, I guess that's up I for mean, debate. You would think if you're if you're looking for ranking, you'd be like, where's uh, uh, where's your like Steven Pinker's at, or you know the, these these big names in academia, these large professors. You would think that would be. That would be adding to the rankings a little bit more. Are, are people gaming these rankings as well? If you're a university, you don't want to say 44, even though number 44 is a pretty good ranking, I would say, to be to be yeah. number 44 school. But you might want to game it and be like, oh, well, we're we're top we're top five business schools in the southeast or yeah. something like that. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's. Um you know, it's up to schools to uh, to decide and up to marketers because this happens for companies too when they're promoting products. And it's up to them to kind of decide how they want to discuss their rankings. They're, they're not, um, you know, they can focus on a narrow group, right? Like for, for my university, we can focus on 
the universities in the Pacific Northwest and talk about our ranking in that group, or we can talk about our rankings nationally. And so there's lots of, I think that's actually the reason I got interested in doing research on this. There's so many ways you can actually think about these lists or how we communicate information from these lists and how consumers might respond differently to to these different uh, ways in which information is uh, shared or communicated with them. So that, that was kind of the starting point for my fascination on this topic. Hmm. Yeah, that's it. we. I guess we do take it to because I I imagine every chimp is sitting around being like, okay, that one's got top five teeth, that that uh, lady a top five groomer, and and they're kind of parsing out these various lists in their in their social group, and and but we do but to to think of a broad category like this school is. Uh, is one of the top five schools in the country. Like, what does that even mean? That it just it, does that mean that like if you go to that school, you're likely to get a really high paying job? Or uh, how? I, yeah. <laughs> it, it's it's a fair point. Sometimes it's hard to to know what the output will be from these kinds of rankings and how how they're interpreted. But we do know, I think, across the board that people, uh, when they see these kinds of claims or you know, if you say you're in the top 10, if you say that you're one of the top 10 comedians in the world, people are going to respond to that. And that's the thing we know. We know that people respond um, to lists and to claims about uh, being in a list. And I think that's the cool thing because it can actually affect real decisions that people make. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, as a comic, every comic goes like one of the top touring comics or you say, yeah, if there's a new comic and they haven't really done much, you want to still build. Everyone wants to like build them. So you say, uh, performs in clubs and colleges all around the... Well, that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't yeah. mean they perform well. Right. Uh, I mean, I guess if they got some gigs, it probably means they're, they don't perform all around in clubs and colleges and are just saying that. So there's a lot of... Uh, there There's... There's a lot of embellishment within these lists that I think a, a, aren't a lot of people keen on this. There's there's like a, a, a what's that marketing bias? It's like the banner, the the banner blindness or whatever. When you have like a blinking banner, it's like real eye catching for a while, but then you get used to it, and then you you kind of ignore the blinking banner. So now, if you want to market to someone that can't be blinking because they're not paying attention to that anymore, yeah, are don't lists go through a similar? That's an, yeah. There's kind of this adaptation where you kind of slowly, you know, it becomes second nature, and you don't think much of it. I think my research has found that uh, just a claim, you know, when you say, "Hey, I'm in the top ten, people. You know, they're busy, they're going through their lives, but it does help. So you get a little boost in terms of evaluation. So if you use this kind of uh, tactic where you talk about being part of a uh, of a ranked list, uh, that generally seems to boost your evaluation in the same way that, you know, saying anything positive, talking about an award you won or, or something else just leads to this, this slight uptake, the slight increase in evaluations. Um, so we do see that, but... That's maybe obvious. The The interesting thing is there's a lot of nuances around it. So, for example, I have some stuff that looks at uh, claims you could make. So let's say you are, you've are you been ranked on some list of comics and you've been ranked 
number nine mm-hmm. in whatever in the country. Okay. okay. So it's not bad, right? right. <laughs> so, so how could you, what's the best way for you to share that information with your audience? Um, you could just say, hey, I was ranked number nine. That's pretty good, right? You could say, I'm in the top 10. Right? Now that's, we don't know where I'm at. You don't. It's ambiguous. Am I number one? Am I number ten? That's right. Although you're probably not number one because the consumer would know that, that you yeah. you would probably have mentioned it. But yeah. you may be six or seven, so there's more ambiguity. You might even say, "I'm in the top nine. You could say that, right? Because you are exactly in the you are number nine, and, and in some ways, being in the top nine. Is should be better than being in the top 10 because you definitely can't be number 10, mm-hmm. right? So, but that's not what we find. We find in our research that you're of those three uh, options saying I'm number nine, saying I'm in the top 10, or saying I'm in the top nine, you're better off saying you're in the top 10. If you say you're in the top nine, you're number nine. That's right. Right. People um, instantly go to the second part of processing, which is they think about, well, what is your exact rank probably going to be? Yeah, why in the world would someone say in the top seven? That's right. Unless they were seven. Yeah, you're kind of going against a norm of communication by using this kind of unnatural boundary for this Mm -hmm. claim. And when you do that, it leads people to process and think more deeply, which, frankly, you don't really want. You want them to just read your Claim and think, wow, that's pretty good, and move on, and yeah. it gets a boost. And that's what saying you're in the top 10 does. Um, mm-hmm. When you use these round numbers, which we call, in our paper, we refer to these as comfort tiers, which people are very used to, saying top 10, top 25, just using those kinds of uh, numbers uh, in a claim leads to a nice boost in evaluation. But talking about a specific rank, especially when it's not number one, um, actually doesn't help as much, or using these kind of weird artificial boundaries like top nine or top seven, hmm. those that can actually hurt you. Um, even though, um, you know, rationally speaking, it, it should be better. Top seven should be better than top 10 because, you know, you can't be eight or nine um, if you're in the top seven. Hmm. Yeah. So that's that's kind of the direction we kind of go on on one of our projects. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting how sometimes using very uh very specific things almost hinder you more than just having this this broad kind of stamp of approval because I'm sure any school could be like, "Hey, there's this one really specific thing that we're exceptional at that m- it just wouldn't mean a lot to to somebody." Or maybe a better example of what I'm trying to say is I advertise myself, and I do a lot of me search on this show. <laughs> I advertise myself, and I go, hey, I've been on Conan five times. That's real impressive sounding, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, Jimmy Kimmel, Comedy Central. And and I don't, uh, like any late night things, I'd almost prefer people not watch them because they don't really represent. I kind of stopped doing late night because it wasn't representative of what I do. I do this long form stuff, more informational and and so to watch that is like not really expressing like what say stand up science is going to be like, mm-hmm. um, but it's this it's this stamp of approval, much like putting a degree on your wall or something like that. Like, oh, okay, this guy's got the stamp, um, therefore he's pretty. So I kind of want people to just be like, okay, they they've done this this and this. That means they're they that they're actually funny or whatever this is going to be a good time and then they they go in rather than 
rather than specifically kind of showing people exactly what uh, exactly what my product is and does it's better to just have this broad like kind of stamp of approval in a way yeah i think that's very consistent the general idea that sometimes we're we're better off when consumers are engaging in more heuristic kind of processing, which is you know they're just looking at the at a, this surface cue. He's got this mental kind of rule of thumb. Yeah, exactly. You're in the top something. I'm, I don't need to read further. That's that's mm-hmm. a good sign. Um, but in in definitely in our research, we find when you push people to go to the next layer of thinking more deeply, um, that can sometimes hurt you. And not always, but definitely, you know. Uh, you're you're better off if I ask you to think deeply about what my exact rank is when you say you're in the top ten. That's actually not good. You're gonna you're probably gonna end up with nine or eight or some some estimate like that, which is fairly low in the list, and that actually hurts your evaluation. So so I totally agree that a lot of times um, marketers are better off when consumers engage in kind of this heuristic level of processing rather than going into a second deeper layer. Plus, say there's a top ten comics to watch or whatever. A lot of times, uh, a lot of times they aren't listed in order. It's just like here's here's ten, yeah, ten of the best comics, and and so there, and that's all you need to know. That's well, and that's actually really interesting because I have so I have a working paper now that that's looking at exactly this idea. So so far we've been talking about ranked lists where there is you know some order um, where people are ranked but a lot of lists there's no ranking you're just part of a group or a category of like the top 10 comics Um, and uh, what we find though is even in those cases people infer ordinality which means they kind of even though there's no rank given we're so used to seeing lists that are ordered one to ten that just the position you show up mm. on the page, uh, they assume something about your mm. um, evaluation or how good you are just from that. Because we're so used to seeing lists in this ranked way, mm. we extrapolate that out and of assume course. ordinality even when the list is unranked. And a lot of times you're just peeking at the list anyway. You might just see the first two and move, and move on. Yeah, that's true. So you might get some attention effects where you focus on the the top of the of the list anyway. But but we find you know you could argue that that might happen um, at the bottom of the list. You might focus on the, the the one at the top and the one at the bottom. But we find that there's definitely this pattern where people when they see a list of names or a list of items on a page arranged vertically like we often see in a ranked list we assume that there's some order there even if you say like here here's my 10 favorite ice cream flavors in no particular order even if i say no particular order people are still going to be like you put strawberry first you like strawberry strawberry ice cream a thing i imagine it's 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 a great question we we find it's definitely weakened the strawberry question (laughs) good question that one (laughs) not quite the strawberry but it's a great example and it's actually something we we investigate in our paper so we when we find we actually have some studies where we tell people these items are listed in random order we sometimes say these items are listed in alphabetical order Mm. and even in those cases um people the the effect is weaker for sure so so not everyone is seeing or is inferring ordinality as much but we still find an effect which is pretty powerful so it tells Mm. us how ingrained this kind of vertical list structure is in our minds that we're so used to seeing information organized in this way that even when it's not we we see it hmm who reads right to left uh isn't it it isn't 
like Mandarin right to left. Or I forget. Is it one of the? I, I'm just curious. So they would, <laughs> yeah. they they would theoretically be viewing lists in kind of the opposite direction. If you're if you're putting I mean, things horizontally, horizontally, it would be along the the way it, the yeah. way in which anyone is has has uh, learned to read. Yeah, it's interesting. Although we actually tell our effect seems to be very vertical focused. So okay. when we, when we order things from. Uh, left to right as people read horizontally we don't see the effect as, hmm. as strongly and i think that's because when we we don't get as many lists organized that way our the the norm is for lists to be presented in this vertical fashion we like see pyramids of, yeah. of things exactly. for status oh okay. yeah exactly so i think that's that's kind of uh, how we've gotten used to seeing lists communicated in this vertical form less so 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 the effect is definitely weaker when you organize things from left to right as opposed to from the top of the page to the bottom hmm. okay so if you want to present yourself in the in the best possible light you want to you want to get yourself on some sort of list yep. a lot of times it doesn't really matter if someone's like heard of it or not you know like i just won an award for my documentary at the dances with films film festival most people have never heard of the dances thank you <laughs> most people have never heard of the dances with films film festival it's not it's not the biggest festival it's not the smallest but uh but just hearing like, oh, this, but this won an award is something that sounds uh, theoretically the same as with like any uh, any list too, right? Have Have you ever studied any uh, any negative thing? Like if if uh, if, if people if, what what was that old you know the 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 top ten FBI. Uh, most wanted right. <laughs> people <laughs> do people automatically assess uh, that 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 like one person is more dangerous or something like you know yeah. if if you any uh, there's negative lists of products anything yeah. like that it, it, presumably the same effects would be taking place yeah i think so i mean i think we are those tend to be even though there are lists like that um for sure that are out there i think again this is based on kind of norms of communication and what we're used to seeing in our everyday life um, and occurrences like that. And so I think our, the typical uh, list we see is arranged in terms of the best item to the worst item. Uh, and so even though there are some exceptions, I think the the general takeaway is where we more expect lists to be to come in one one form from good to bad rather than vice versa. Um, but we would expect the same kind of pattern to, to hold even for negative lists. I haven't tested that explicitly though. Hmm. Um, where would you say you rank in, in the, uh, of, of list researchers? Where, where are you on that list? Of specific uh, within researchers who study ranked lists then you know i've, I've got to be in the top 10 all right well i'm not going to read too much into <laughs> that stop stop okay. there and then you can <laughs> you can move on but. um so you you do all sorts of of cool stuff and how uh like this paper on on how uh i was thinking a lot about this uh the paper of um, consumers' gender identity influences their environmental decision making. Yeah, this is something that resonated with me. I'm I'm from uh, I'm from small midwestern town and had like a 
upbringing where uh, a, a lot of in my peer group there was a lot of pressure to be like a manly man like yeah. tough guy kind of <laughs> stuff and and whoever could beat up who on the playground and and that sort of thing and uh and and you're in in the work from uh from me doing deep deep research i read the abstract <laughs> um <laughs> that's better it, than most people so it, it seems it, it seems that there's a big gender difference in in how we think about uh being green and how we think about it and environmentally yeah yeah that i think that's right so we 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 can't take credit for for all of that there's been a lot of research over the years that has found that women tend to be more green than men um, so that's been kind of shown that that women tend to be much more environmentally friendly uh, but the thing is most of the prior work has kind of related this to personality trait differences between the genders so women are more empathetic and so they show greater care for the environment they're also more conscientious and in, uh, in, a, in a big five survey don't they have to don't they have to like um give give males a, a handicap just to just That's, to um, come anywhere close to the yeah, conscientiousness levels. Absolutely. So, so I think for for all these reasons, it's been linked to these personality traits, and also, um, you know, historically, women uh, were more responsible for kind, kind of care of the home and that sort of thing, and that might translate to care for the earth and, and things like that. So, that's been the historical reasons that have been given for for why this effect occurs, why women are are greener than men. And while we, we're not at all disputing any of that, we find that there's also this motivational component that you were just uh, referring to. And uh, what we find is there, there seems to be uh, what we call a green feminine stereotype, where people kind of link mentally the concepts of greenness and femininity. So, um, And we test this in lots of different ways. There's uh, a famous test called the implicit association test, which really looks at how uh, quickly respond um, when when items are paired with one another. And we find that people respond uh, more quickly when you pair green uh, products um, with uh, feminine names uh, as opposed to with male, with masculine names. And um, that suggests to us and, and that these concepts are, are co-located, they're associated near one another in our brains. So when we're, when we're responding to one, the other kind of comes with it, or it's easier to, to respond to it. Um, and so we find this general stereotype, and it's something that um, seems to be there not just for men, but even women seem to hold the stereotype of connecting greenness and femininity. Mm. But the interesting thing is it seems to affect men a lot, um, where especially when their gender identity is threatened, and we know gender identity for many people is incredibly important to their self-identity, and when it's threatened, then they try to uh, protect that uh, gender identity, and so they might be less likely to use environmental products at that point. I mean, I can't really identify because I'm like I'm just like a really big man with big man parts, and I'm like super strong and stuff. So I've just never had to worry about those things. But too um, much, <laughs> yeah. But um, uh, but you you are kind of saying that that males males tend to focus a little more on like what a man is and behaving that way than than what females. Yeah, and and part of that is you know prior work has shown that um, you know men uh, when they don't uh, act in ways that are considered more 
uh, gender um, appropriate um, uh, based on social norms, they're penalized more for it mm-hmm. than when women um, act in, in ways or when girls act in ways that are more like what traditionally boys would do or how they would act. And so because they're penalized more for it, they learn to try to avoid those kinds of activities mm. um, um, more and more. And especially when someone is threatening their their identity, then they retreat back to trying to be as macho as they can be. And that might mean, you know, being more wasteful and less uh, environmentally friendly. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I guess I can kind of see that. I, I don't know how fair it is, but if you're if you're a guy that doesn't act like a specific in a specific way, the penalty is like you might get punched. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> where whereas a female that doesn't act, she might be like verbally made fun of or whatever. And and I would say that like uh, maybe a, a microaggression is is going to be quite painful, but maybe not quite the same as <laughs> as getting beat up. Yeah, um, physically and it, but also isn't from kind of a sexual selection standpoint. I would almost say that females do throughout much of the animal kingdom do a bit more of the kind of selecting, and and so guys might be a little more concerned with identity. I don't know. I guess. It, yeah, I mean, I think. Um... Well, for sure, society seems to, at least historically, has tolerated, um, you know, tomboys um, mm-hmm. more than, say, a, a boy who's acting more in ways that mm-hmm. are traditionally ascribed to a, uh, to a girl. So I think part of that is 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 for sure driving why men might be very sensitive to um, to these cues and want 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 to. Um, you know, appear more manly mm. when they can. So after after you like lose a fight or or feel like um, sexually incompetent or something in the bed, you can go and like litter or there something you go. after and then, that. Then, then, it makes then you're you, feeling manly. That's again. well. Th- these were fun experiments to to run. So we, we were, really wait, so what was the methodology? <laughs> what, so what we did a, we did doing? a few things. So um, we had one study where we had. Um, participants engage in a writing task where they wrote about what they had done yesterday and then we provided false feedback to, to males either that you know their writing style and content um, was more like a male or it was more sure. like a, a female uh, and you uh, wrote like a lady was it just <laughs> right. about cursive that's no it was all on a computer so it was the content there was okay. this, this supposedly this content analysis that was done and they were they got mm. a score back and they could either see that you know they had written like like a man or like a woman mm. and then afterwards they were uh, given options of different products to choose from some that were more environmentally friendly and some that were less and we looked for whether they that threat or that affirmation uh, affected their uh, their choices of products. Um, we had another study where participants were told uh, that they had received a gift card, and the gift card was either um, you know more used more masculine kind of colors, uh, or it was more frilly and it had flowers on it. And the, uh, the gift, Mm. the person who had sent them the card said, you know, I thought this gift card would be perfect for you. (laughs) Uh, and then after that, they were, they were asked to use the gift card to buy, buy things. And they were more likely to use the gift card to buy, to buy things that were less environmentally friendly if they, if they were men and had just received this, you know, frilly gift card that was yeah, supposedly you perfect go to the for auto parts That's store. Right. And, yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, <laughs> and it's, it's fascinating that, that you find these kinds of, um, these kinds sure. of strong effects there. I mean, it, I guess it, 
sort of makes sense when you hear it. It certainly resonates and rings true a little bit for me. Maybe not for everybody and maybe not for every, every listener identifies, but but there's aspects of it that, that ring true. But yeah. this is a, like much of science. You, you would never really think about it until you hear it. And then right. you're like, oh, okay, <laughs> that, that makes sense. So did did you find within genders... Did you find a difference um, or, or did you test this at all of like, like I would uh, genuinely speaking, I, I, I don't know if I'd be like in the middle or more toward the feminine side as far as men go. But but uh, I'd say I'm probably I'm definitely not like a macho man. But, uh, you know, there there's there's guys that are clearly very stereotypically like driving a monster truck and whatnot. And then there are guys that that express themselves in a much more feminine way. Same with females. Did you find any differences just within the gender if you were uh, like a tomboy? Mm-hmm. versus a very like dolled up girly girl um what was there any differences in um the green uh and eco identification there yeah so so even though most of our studies focused strictly on participants actual gender mm-hmm. um we did measure um you know their gender the extent of their gender identity so how much even if you were a male, how masculine you felt you were versus how feminine. And I think the the big takeaway is it really depends on how important that gender identity is to you, right? So if if being um, masculine is an important part of your gender identity, then when that's threatened, then you want to uh, reassert your masculinity. But if you are very comfortable with being with, a, if you're a male that's that's very comfortable with your feminine side, then maybe you aren't really threatened that much when someone tells you you write, you know, like like a woman, and then you won't get the effect as strongly. So it really does depend on 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 your uh, perception uh, of your own uh, gender identity. Hmm. I mean. The, this this makes me kind of think about uh, in terms of like well how do you correct this so if you if you want guys to uh, so you still want guys who want to identify as men to be able to identify in any way they anyone should be able to identify in any way that they please and advertise themselves in any, any way that they please but i think on a conscious level we all recognize that we should probably be a little more toward the the green side of things mm-hmm. so maybe there's ways that we can f- find new ways of getting guys to express themselves uh, there's there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there because it seems like guys are intentionally kind of incurring costs upon themselves and the and their environment to kind of advertise their resilience yeah. in situations this is a lot of uh there, there's a lot of kind of sexual selection in that going on too mm-hmm. in terms of kind of uh uh, like, are you familiar with the handicap principle? It's just just the idea of incurring costs on yourself mm-hmm. to advertise how there is. So testosterone is kind of hard on the hard on the immune system. And if you release in these uh, the large amounts of testosterone and have a strong jawline because of it, it shows that your immune system was at least strong enough at that time to release that much testosterone, which means you had a hardy enough immune system to start with and hmm. all the way down to uh, uh, behavioral type things of whether it's like bench press. I could tell you how much I bench press, but I could be lying. And so to actually show that I can bench press, I have to have these kind of, of 
physical muscles that you can see. Uh, and I'm, I'm just wondering if there's another way that guys can express themselves yeah. or how do you how do you make uh, how do you make uh being green like tough i i mean there's certainly there's a lot of there's been a lot of movements within there's like a tough guy like vegans mm-hmm. now uh like trying to promote that as a lifestyle i wonder if, if that will start springing up when once once work like yours becomes uh kind of permeates the culture uh and and people become more mindful of these kind of effects do you do you think that there will be some weird outlet for it like (laughs) hybrid muscle uh, monster trucks or something like that yeah i mean so actually we spent a lot of time thinking about you know how we how this could be used for good you know how can we get men to um be more environmentally uh, friendly in their behaviors and you know, obviously one way is you affirm their masculinity in some other way. Um, I don't know how exactly you might do that in art. You know, we use these these kind of stylized tasks where you tell them they write like a male. But, you know, some way, clearly anything we can do to affirm their masculinity is going to help. Help That may not always be practical, right? But that's that's one possibility. The other thing we found that's maybe more marketing relevant or easier for marketers to do is really to look at the, um, you know, the colors, the fonts, what they're using with their green products. A lot of times, um, just if you look generally with, even though there are some exceptions, like the ones you just mentioned, um, many of the green products tend to use colors and fonts and styles and uh, logos that um, are more traditionally feminine. And just changing that um, can make a big difference. So, you know, we ran a study where we found that men were very reluctant to donate to a charity called Friends of Nature, where um, basically there was a, a picture of a flower. Um, but if if instead they were asked to donate to the Wilderness Rangers, where there you know mm. there was a logo of a howling wolf, sure. uh, suddenly they were much more willing. And and I think you know you don't have to go that far, but to the extent that we can use colors or fonts or, or things that that don't seem to um, communicate femininity along with uh, the environmental friendliness uh, that might go a long way to get um, to get men to, to kind of pay attention and to engage. Mm. Um, so those are those are a couple of things. I think to your point, though, it would be even better if people just learned that, you know, uh, environmental friendliness is good for everyone. It doesn't have to mean you're, you know, not a man. Um, and so I think an even better kind of intervention would be something where we can actually teach people or people can learn that that this these things don't have to go together um the problem is the stereotype seems to be pretty ingrained um we even found it we thought maybe among millennials who may not have the same kind of view of um you know uh, the same associations between greenness and femininity but we we're still finding this kind of stereotype across the board for among males and females and across age groups so i think it's harder um, I've run some studies where we've we've tried to see if um, you know you could teach people about the benefits of environmentalism and if that would kind of keep the stereotype from emerging and affecting behaviors. And sadly, so far anyway, the um, the results haven't been all that positive. Hmm. Um, so I definitely hope in time we can get there, but I'm, I'm not sure it's going to 
happen overnight. What what about really masculinizing uh, like the recycling plant, like showing they're crushing cans and you're melting down metal and you know there's a sleeveless guy with big muscles and tattoos. And, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I think that would be great. Uh, yeah, turn turn your uh, turn your garbage into a sword. <laughs> that you know that I bet that would work. Sadly, <laughs> I bet that would work. I do kind of want a recycled sword now that I, I mean, it's already working on, as I'm like, I bet a bunch of dudes would fall for that, dummies. And I'm like, I would fall for that. I would too, actually. So I'm right with you. Um, so uh, let, let's uh, let's talk a little bit uh, about some of your your other work. You have some uh, some stuff with measuring um customer satisfaction uh with let's see uh it says exploring um measuring equipment separately from satisfaction by comparing the predictive validity of these two measures on consumer behavior what's that all about wow um did i just butcher everything no that that was all right that was all right but um so so yeah uh, actually are, are we jumping around a little too much yeah no that, that's fine that's fine um Actually, maybe before we even touch on that, sure. um, I, I can I can talk about some some other uh, other work that's a little bit different than that. Would that be all right? Yeah, Is that, it's okay. Yeah. Sorry, um, it's our show. We're it's building a, yeah, this together. We can, we can do what we want, yeah. right? Okay, it's great. Just a natural conversation. <laughs> yeah, just a couple dudes talking about recycling. <laughs> yeah, go. bro, time. <laughs> just bonding over some recycling. <laughs> that, nothing look, better. Look, oh man, look at this this glass that uh, that I just finished. I can't wait to throw this in the recycle bin am i right bro that's right that sounds good <laughs> all right that's great. um all yeah. right what do you got for me so so i have this other work which um which i which i think my maybe your your uh, listeners might find interesting it's so, so it looks at um this idea of when we're selling uh used products right so um, oh when, yeah, I when, really like this stuff. I'm glad you're talking about this instead. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I could talk about the satisfaction could, piece, but I thought that that no, that this could is good. And more. we've talked about we've talked about similar things uh, to this in the past. So there's okay. going to be a, a nice kind of uh, anchor point, and we're going to get some frequency of of cool. of uh, yeah, in, ingraining these ideas in in people. So uh, not not specifically this, just similar ideas of attaching to things and the kind of the IKEA effect and that sort of thing. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, so this work, you know, when we sell a product, you know, at that point, we made the decision to sell uh, the goods. So you would think that the most important thing to you would be, you know, to get as much money as you can from that good now that you've decided to sell it. And our work finds that um, we still have this great emotional attachment to a lot of products that, mm. that we, um, even after we've made the decision to dispose of them uh, or to sell them in, in in the secondhand market. And our work finds that because of this attachment, we're actually willing to forego um, you know, some financial gains in order to make sure that the product ends up in a good home so that if it's used in the right way, we're, we're, we're absolutely willing to um, you know, accept less money and um and and can be pretty big effects mm. and, and i think that's that's really interesting and it gets to the the power of products you know even though nowadays people are moving away from ownership of products and they're more interested in the experiences and things like that there's still a pull that many products have on us especially if we've had you know a history there imagine 
you're selling your home. Um, you've got all of these experiences that you've had there. And when you're selling it, you might not just be thinking about, you know, how making as much as you can. As soon as you move out, they just bulldoze the <laughs> thing that you spent the last 15 years of your that's life building memories. Yeah, and absolutely. that That's going to be really painful. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, uh, we find that when potential buyers communicate usage intent and appropriate usage intent during the negotiation process, ah, that can be actually really powerful. Right. And, and we see that actually um, mm. already in the real estate market. So Seattle has had a very, um, you know, popular and uh, growing real estate market for the last few years. And um, now you know, it's cooled a little bit recently, but... Uh, it's exceptionally expensive here. It's, it's pretty expensive, yes. Um, and what would happen is uh, there'd be multiple offers on a property. And so... Uh, potential buyers would start writing these letters. Um, their, their agents would tell them, you know, you should write a letter where you communicate, here's how you're going to use this house. I've got three kids. My, my daughter is going to use this for her bedroom. She loves this, these kinds of things. This is what my, we're going to do with this office. The boy has it's, asthma. So <laughs> like this, this, the way the house is constructed is perfect because we need to make sure there's no mildew or whatever thing yeah yeah i mean I, I think the and especially our research focuses on how you're going to use it and mm -hmm. how you're going like how you're going to use the product and what you're going to do with the product and for um sellers that is so important that uh how the product is used fits it's appropriate it's it's right it feels right um and so they're willing to forego um you know, you know real money um uh, based on that Someone just gave me one of their old projectors as I was like, hey, what projector should I get for my stand-up science show? And someone sent me one of theirs because it's now, now their projector is going to spreading information and hopefully making the world a better place. I do this yeah. with my old clothes. I have this attachment. I spent, look, <laughs> look at the shirt. I, I mean, I spent a lot of time picking the shirt on. Oh, I can see that. I, I like it. And then, uh, and then eventually it's going to shrink up on me. Because I'm on the road a lot and I don't wash clothes properly. <laughs> and it's so much nicer if I can give them to a friend that then I can see them making good use out of this thing that I, I spent a lot of time picking out. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely true. And, and especially the more attached you are to the shirt or to the item, that effect is going to be stronger mm -hmm. where you're going to be really influenced by um, you know, this kind of usage intent when it's communicated. So, so I think that's, it's actually really interesting. And, you know, the advice that we have is potentially you might want to guard against this sometimes, right? Um, because you may not make the financially most sound decision, you could potentially, um, you, you might be better off sometimes leaving all of that to your agent, right? Like, mm -hmm. and so sometimes having a, an unemotional intermediary can be helpful to you if if you really are trying to maximize it's not just a shirt gosh darn it there you go yeah <laughs> this yeah. is a part of my life it's yeah and that's why you wouldn't right. you know you wouldn't profit so I'm maximize giving this away for for to a friend for for free rather than uh selling it off to some fool for 25 dollars or something that's right and you know we're not saying that you shouldn't you should always do that, but sometimes people don't realize that they're actually giving, leaving money on the table. If you realize it and you're okay with it, that's one thing. Yeah. But if you think that you're actually acting in your best financial interest, um, and you you 
and you aren't, <laughs> I think that's yeah. that's where there's an issue. You just so. sold your house. You lost. Uh, you could have. You left twenty thousand yeah. dollars on the table because someone. Uh, someone listened to this podcast and wrote you right. a nice flowery letter. That's right. That's right. And that, that may be okay if you, you know, if you do derive the satisfaction from that and you're okay with it. But sometimes you may not realize it. dollars worth of satisfaction, though. Maybe. Yeah, that's that's true. That's a lot. Hmm. Hmm. So, what what other aspects of life do you see this? Um. So we, you know, we've looked at this in uh, the context of selling goods so you know when you sell a car when you sell a home um we're doing some work now looking at uh rental markets as well you know because Mm -hmm. in the context of um, a lot of times you might rent out a product um in the sharing economy for a couple of weeks when you're out of town um, there's more and more products that are getting rented out and we were curious whether you would find similar effects in uh rental situations as opposed to when you're actually getting rid or selling the product. And um, we definitely find that in rental cases, um, you are the biggest thing that you're focused on is, is wear and tear on the product because you know you're, it's going to come back to you. So you're extremely worried about wear and tear more than anything else. And especially if you're attached to the product, that's mm-hmm. your primary focus. You just don't want it to get used even if it's going to be enjoyed, you you would want it to come back to you in the same condition that it left you. Mm. Um, so attached people are a little different there. If you're unattached, you might want to see your product, you know, get used a little bit. But um, when you're attached, the only thing you're thinking about in a rental context is preserving the product. Mm. All right. Well, I, as we're wrapping up here, I have my guests each week plug a charity of their choice. What would you like to plug? Um, so I would just like to plug the uh, Michael J. Fox uh, Parkinson's uh, Disease Foundation. I think uh, they're doing a lot of great uh, work and uh, research on Parkinson's disease, which is a, a debilitating progressive disease, and there is no cure. And so, um, you know, I encourage everyone to uh, look at organizations that uh, that are contributing to research on Parkinson's because I think it's important to find find cures for these kinds of diseases. Wonderful. Actually, uh, rather than going back to what we were going to talk about, kind of related in a way, uh, we're talking about diseases. You did some work. Uh, you wrote an op-ed about hospitals and clinics. And uh, and Sharon, could you give me a brief? Because I, I went online to, to read it, but it was going to make me buy the subscription. Oh, there you or go. Whatever. So, <laughs> so, it was, so I've been curious. I, yeah. I saw the, the brief little summary and I wanted to hear more. Yeah, I mean, so it's interesting because um, I'm a marketing professor and, you know, marketing is all about um, satisfying the customer, figuring out customer wants and needs and thinking about how to satisfy satisfy them. And what's interesting is a lot of um, hospitals and health organizations now, um, they're realizing that consumers are looking at Yelp and other kind of uh, review sites uh, when they're picking out providers and choosing providers. And um, what what some organizations are starting to do is actually uh, share, uh, you know, physician ratings and nurse ratings and things like that on their own website. So, for example, the University of Utah uh, Health System, you can they now 
you know, after you go to visit a doctor there, you might fill out a satisfaction card and then um, they, they collect data uh, on, you know, how satisfied people were. And now they are actively sharing this kind of information back um, to uh, prospective uh, users. So, so someone else can see, oh, this physician, Dr. X, was, uh, had a rating of 4.2 out of 5 on average. And um, on one hand, that sounds really good. It's very transparent. You get all of this uh, information at your fingertips. And so as a customer, you can make the choice you want. And it seems like that's a complete positive. Um, and my op-ed actually, which is kind of surprising for a marketing professor to say, I think, uh, is that, you know, even though there are some benefits to that approach, I also am worried a little bit because there are some domains when the customer may not always be able to assess everything. You know, they can assess for sure bedside manner of a physician, but they may not be able to assess things like, uh, are they getting the right um uh, you know, is it was this the right treatment plan, et cetera, because they don't have the skills and the training to always be able to Someone do that. Someone does a surgery on my foot, how am I to know how good of a job they the, another foot surgeon could look at their work and assess if they did a good job or not. Yeah. I can tell you if my foot hurts or not, but I can't tell you whether it would hurt more or less or long-term effects or anything else. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm not an expert. That's right. And that's what I'm worried about a little bit in certain mm-hmm. domains. I feel it's fine to measure these kinds of things and to report it as long as we all understand what is being measured, right? It's, it's that we are, we might be you might be telling us about your pain level. You might be telling us about how clean the office was. You know, those sorts of things you can assess. But there might be certain things that are really out of your domain of expertise. And that may not show up in the 4.3 or the 3.1. So I'm, so I am worried about certain domains. And actually, I think education is even one of those, right? You know, um, you could argue that, you know, professors, we get evaluated by students. And part of that is is very appropriate. But also, some is a hot pepper. That's yeah, right. Some I think they oh, took that a, off. What was that? The oh, the rate your professors. Yeah, thing. is the that right? Your professor, the chili yeah, pepper, or whatever. That's, that's right. Yes, that's a real favorite for us for yeah. us professors. But um, yeah, I mean, I I think though, you, of course, the outcome, like the grade you get and things like that, is gonna is gonna impact your rating. Rotten Tomatoes has audience score and critics score. Do you think? What if you had something like that going on in a hospital? Yeah, I think that would be great to you know to have um, more peer kind of evaluations mm-hmm. when when someone can actually uh, evaluate. I think it would be hard to figure out how to do that in a trustworthy way. Yeah, right? without gaming the system and yeah. everyone's just going to have a hundred percent. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. Exactly. So you'd have yeah. to figure out a way to do it correctly. But but I, I just feel like this. Um, over con- consumerization, you know, the, the consumer is always right on everything. Um, there's some merit to it, but we have to be thoughtful about oh, how we no, implement yeah. that. Oh, as a comedian, I have to assume people don't have a clue. I have to assume people don't know if they have to go to the bathroom to get up and go to the bathroom and come back to the show. You might be meaning well and like trying to hold it and be like, I want to listen to everything. And now you're (laughs) just paying attention to whether you have to pee or not. So you wouldn't think you'd have to give people a talk about going to the bathroom. You wouldn't (laughs) think you'd need to give people a talk about going and uh turning their cell phones off in a show like that people people have like they don't mean anything by it they have no idea that texting is inappropriate during a live show people don't know that that 
if the room's not full and they're sitting way to the back, laughter is a contagious thing, then they need to be sitting in the front. So you need to actually physically, you got to seat people. You got to have the club seat people be like, you sit in front, you'll enjoy yourself more sitting here, even though your impulse is saying that you're not going to enjoy it. So there's a lot of ways in which... Got to um, add all that to your checklist. That are, <laughs> those are many things that uh, that are uh, on the on the checklist as well. Actually, I'm going to add all that to the checklist. But there there are a lot of times in which like I... I still I go and get a haircut. I kind of give them a general of like what, I, but I hope that they know more about cutting hair right. than I do. So there's a certain point where I'm like, and you figure out the rest. <laughs> you know, I yeah. I can't tell you what scissors and style trim V cut on my hair or whatever. Mm. Um, so there is the the age old the customer is always right. I think we're going to give up on that eventually. I think we need to train ourselves to realize that there's such a thing as expertise yeah. in in domains of our lives and to and to trust the experts sometimes as well. Yeah, finding a happy medium is where. So I'm definitely not pushing all one way or the other, but I think there is probably a happy medium. And in some places, I feel like maybe we're going too far uh, in one direction. Well, thank you, Matt Isaac, for being the number one here we are guest checklist expert slash manly eco friendly uh, recycled hybrid monster truck is what I want you to own next time I see you. That is perfect. Um, and uh, and this uh, I'm I'm a I'm a satisfied uh, producer of this podcast and consumer of of uh various works sure i Great. i'm trying to tie all <laughs> these things together and it's sort of falling apart just at the end but all this is to say is you're a fantastic guest and i cannot wait to see you uh give a talk and and have a, the q a afterwards at the live show tomorrow thank you for being a part of the here we are podcast Thank you very much. This was a lot of fun. And thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you next week. Next week on the Here We Are podcast, I'm in my hometown of La Crosse, Wisconsin, at UWL, talking with Keely Reese about New Year's resolutions. Kind of a little update. How's it been going for you? Did you make any? Did you fail on some? We talk about setting goals, how to kind of implement some of those better habits in your life. Fantastic, important episode. And thanks again for being a part of this podcast. I can't believe that we now have 201 episodes. And if you want to come out to see Stand Up Science, if you know anyone in the area so far on the official tour this year, we've had, at the time I'm recording this, Five out of five sold-out shows. So by the time you're listening to this, um, I have coming up Pittsburgh, you may have missed, then Columbus, Cleveland, Chicago, Lansing, Kalamazoo, Royal Oak, Madison, Milwaukee, Des Moines, Iowa City, Minneapolis, New York, Washington, D.C., Providence, Rhode Island, Boston, Newmarket, New Hampshire, Portland, Maine, Harrisburg, Virginia, Richmond, Virginia, Norfolk, Virginia, Raleigh, Greensboro, North Carolina, Asheville, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, Nashville, Border, Colorado, Denver, Colorado. We're adding more all of the time, uh, especially right now we're working on that southeast region. Uh, I think we just got Charlotte lined up. So 
keep on checking. You can always go to shanemoss.com to find out more about that. I think we're going to be adding some more Midwest dates again soon and kind of looping back from the southeast into the Midwest a little bit from Tennessee. Not totally sure yet, but please keep checking and keeping an eye on that for me and spreading the word to anyone you can in any of those areas. I'm t- uh, man, if I if I have successful tour, this is just going to really help my life out so much, not just in terms of financially getting myself out of a out of a hole, but just having people excited about it and building toward my future and maybe having a stable show that I can keep on going back to these places over and over again. And even more importantly for some people that maybe are out of the country or or don't live anywhere near any of these cities and you're out in Alaska or something like that and and you're really wanting to see this, well, this is the type of thing that I'm hoping to pitch for um, television and other projects coming up soon. So having a successful tour is going to do a lot toward showing people that there is a demand for this kind of content out there. Again, Stand Up Science is uh, me hosting. I warm up the crowd for 15 minutes, and then an academic doing a 15-minute talk, like a TED Talk, and then... uh, comic doing 10 to 15 minutes and then another academic talk and then all four of us at the end having a group conversation and a panel based on audience questions so you guys get to be involved as well it's a fantastic show they've all been a huge success so far it's incredibly nerve-wracking it's a lot of work lining up all different guests in every one of these cities is so much work, but um, it's it's worth it. So keep spreading the word for me, and thank you very much for listening. Those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorites.
Yeah.